This is KGNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Something obviously went horribly wrong on the set of Alec Baldwin's new movie in New Mexico. This Baldwin accidentally shot and killed the film cinematographer and injured the director. This after firing what was supposed to be a prop gun loaded with a blank. We'll try to get details and try to get a better understanding of how many safety protocols had to break down in order for something like this to occur. And echoes of the winter of 2020 playing out in the UK right now. COVID infections starting to surge again. When you buy a box of strawberry Pop-Tarts, what's your expectation for how many strawberries actually went into making that? Again, we're talking about a Pop-Tart here. Uh, We will talk with a lawyer leading a lawsuit against Kellogg's claiming we are all being lied to at the breakfast table. We'll get a look at a national investigation of incidents of police force against children, how little training cops get in dealing with kids, and then Congressman Adam Schiff on the January 6th insurrection, the investigation, and his new book, Midnight in Washington. And to be clear, we are talking about Pop-Tarts. Mm-hmm. Yes. How many strawberries went into that Pop-Tart? And the nutritional value. That's right. Okay. We start <laughs> with a film stunt that went horribly wrong. Dana Harris-Brideson is editor-in-chief of IndieWire. Dana, thanks for being with us. I want to uh, go right uh, away to uh, something that the L.A. Times is now reporting, uh, and I'm just going to read the first two graphs very quickly. It says, hours before uh, actor Alec Baldwin was fatally shot a cinematographer in the New Mexico set of Rust with a prop gun, a half dozen camera crew workers walked off the set to protest working conditions. The L.A. Times goes on to say the camera operators and their assistants were frustrated by the conditions surrounding the low-budget film, including complaints of long hours and pay. And the uh, L.A. Times quotes three people familiar with the matter who were not authorized to comment. So uh, I'm wondering if you have any information along those lines, and if, if not, what your take on the whole incident is. Well, I've heard the same thing uh, about the camera crew uh, uh, filing a complaint with their union for the uh, the treatment they got received on the set. Um, to me, I, I find this believable because the number of things that had to go wrong for this accident to happen is truly staggering. Um, it's not a matter of unions not having an understanding of protocol for handling firearms. Those are very well established and they are incredibly detailed and there is safety guard upon safety guard that is in place if you actually follow the protocol. And what you're describing there with the camera crew walking off to protest conditions is a result of productions cutting corners. It's when you're trying to do do too much in too little of a time and there's a human cost and obviously the camera crew reacted. And if you're cutting corners, those are exactly the sorts of things that the niceties that you lose in the case of a gun accident. I mean, the the number of things that you have to do for a gun accident to happen is it's infuriating, actually. Does that help us answer some of the other questions as in, you know, we're still going to need to learn the circumstances first. Uh, You know, what kind of scene was it? Where was it discharged? And why yeah, was it but, hitting two people? Of, but again, yes, if, all, if it gets to the point where the steps weren't taken to put a gun with a live round in somebody's hand, then then that's yeah, that it, leads us it, there. It, yeah, but it, the thing is, is that the number of to even have the possibility of a bullet existing on set is crazy. It's just like you, there, there's not supposed to be any live ammunition on a set ever. 
unless unless you have very specific circumstances in which only a live ammo shot is the only way that you're going to get the shot that you want, that there's full agreement among everybody that that's the only way to get it. And then you have permission from the local authorities like the sheriff and uh, you have a permit for it as well. So, so, so you have, Dana, all of these, uh, supposed to have, all of these precautions in place. Who then on a film set would be ultimately responsible to make sure that all these precautions are actually being executed? All of these precautions belong to the prop master. And if you're a union prop master, which apparently this person is not because Local 44, which governs the unions, has already said that, this per- that there is nobody on the uh, call sheet for Rust who's a union member, if you're a union prop master, you receive detailed education in terms of gun safety. But in, on any set, you know, union, non-union, it's the prop master's responsibility unless you have a weapons expert on board. Dana Harris Bryson, editor-in-chief of IndieWire. Dana, thanks. Okay, so how many different mistakes and safety breakdowns had to happen on that set of Alec Baldwin's film for someone to get shot and killed? When we come back, we will get into that. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Right now, there were likely multiple failures and breakdowns of safety protocols on multiple different levels and by multiple different people on the set of Alec Baldwin's movie that led the actor to shoot and kill the film's cinematographer and injure the film's director. Steve Wolf is president of Wolf Stuntworks. He's founder of the organization Science and Movies. That's a TV, and he's a TV producer and a firearms instructor. Steve, thanks for for being with us. And I want to just recap uh, for you and and also our listening audience uh, an L.A. Times story that uh, has just run, saying that uh, a half dozen camera crew workers walked off the set to protest working conditions. Of course, this was leading up to the uh, shooting that occurred. What do you as an expert on these sort of things make of that? Uh, You know, if people are willing to walk away from good paying work on a movie set, uh, given how hard it is to get that job, it's probably a pretty good indicator that a lot of things are going wrong. So now let's pick up on something we heard from the reporter in our last segment. With all these rules that we mentioned and all these, these different steps you're supposed to go through, there really should not be a way for this to happen if things are going according to plan. Not only if they're going off the plan, but you have to go off the plan in so many different directions at once to create an accident like this. You're supposed to use a prop gun that can't shoot live ammo. Well, let's say you do have the wrong kind of gun. Okay, so you put a blank in it. You're probably still okay. You put live ammo into a real gun and you shoot it and you don't point it at someone. You also don't kill anybody. So you've got to go off the rails there, too. You have to have a gun that's capable of shooting live ammo, live ammo in the gun, and point it at someone when you discharge it. So you've got to screw up at least three ways in order to to create a fatal accident like this. There was an incident, of course, uh, years ago on another movie set involving uh, Brandon Lee, the son of... of yes. Um, yeah. And and uh, I believe you were involved in that investigation. Yeah, I, right? I, I investigated that as well. Okay. So after that particular incident, I was going to say the son of, of Bruce Lee, right? Um, That's correct. Yeah. After that incident, a lot of things supposedly changed in Hollywood to make sure that would never happen again. Well, here we are having a discussion about something that seems to have happened again. So 
what happened to all these years of, of rulemaking and safety precautions and people taking training and all this other stuff? Well, the people who knew about Brandon Lee and the Crow got old and retired and new people moved up who you know aren't aware of the, the dangerous uh, safety record of working with firearms. Um, those those rules are known, though. You know, there's no excuse not to educate yourself about this. And also there's a, an onus on the production company to check the credentials of the person who they hire to be in charge of gun safety, to make sure that they have the knowledge and the experience to keep something like this from happening. So the onus is on the prop master, the people around him or her? The prop master and the people who hired him. Why in, in 2021 do you even need to, in a movie, use uh, a real gun, a fake gun, uh, firing blanks, not firing? Why can't this all be done with computer-generated graphics? So doing the CGI for the firearm itself is unnecessary. Um, people can handle unloaded firearms on sets with, with no danger. Um, but the, the muzzle blast and the sound effects can certainly be put in in post, and it is often done. So you're, you're right that it's not necessary to have uh, guns or blank, you know, to, to have blanks inside of guns on movie sets anymore. If I'm an actor and I'm doing the scene and Prop Master comes and hands me the gun, what happens? Is there another talk that goes between those two or do they just yeah, assume yeah, that everything's yeah, okay? You, you know, no, you act like an idiot who's never seen a gun before and say, explain this to me. I, I don't understand the safety of this. I don't understand how if I point a gun at someone, it's not going to do what it's designed to do and kill them. Please walk me through this. Show me that this gun has been modified so that it can't accept real ammo. Show me that what you're loading with it is not live ammo and that there's no bullet attached to it. Show me how to point this so that if something does discharge from it, it doesn't hurt anyone. So, you know, as an actor, as the person holding the gun, you know, the, the killing weapon, you know, there, there's some onus on you to understand the equipment that you're working with. A lot of people probably don't even know what a blank is when we hear, oh, the, the gun was it's a prop gun, it's shooting blanks. Can you briefly explain what exactly is a blank? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a cartridge, which is what is placed into a gun, typically has four components. It has the casing, which is essentially the chassis that holds it all together. At the back, it has a primer which is a shock sensitive explosive called lead azide, which is detonated by a hammer hitting it. It has gunpowder inside, and then it has a bullet, which is the projectile that is pushed out when the gunpowder burns and becomes a highly compressed gas. In a blank, you skip the projectile. So you still have the casing, you've got to put something in the gun that's holding the gunpowder, uh, and you have, a, have to have a way to light the gunpowder, and that's the primer, but that's it. A little paper wadding, uh, and that holds the gunpowder in, and no bullet. So typically a blank, you know, is just a casing, powder, and a primer, not a bullet that can come out and kill somebody. Now, you will get a lot of hot expanding gases coming out of the muzzle, so you need to make sure that not only is there not a bullet in it, there's not anything else in it that could become a projectile. Um, so you have to visually inspect the gun to make sure that the barrel is clear before you put anything inside it. Steve Wolf, president of Wolf Stunt Works, uh, founder of the organization Science and Movies, a TV producer, firearms instructor. When we come back, there are echoes of last winter's COVID surge starting to play out yet again, this time in the UK.
This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Later on in the program, police officers, are they properly trained when it comes to dealing with young kids suspected of committing crimes? Right now, though, the rate of COVID infections on the rise again in the UK. And then there's the arguments, are there more lockdown measures, more restrictions? What do you do with this? Dr. Tim Spector, genetic epidemiologist at King's College London with us. Doctor, thank you. So the situation right now uh, in the UK is what? Uh, pretty rubbish, really. Um, cases are going up. We have, uh, uh, according to our own app estimates, which come from the uh, Zoe COVID study, which is an independent app, which uh, estimates the rates across the whole of the UK, uh, which came out of a, a, a nutrition company, which um, called Zoe, um, is estimating 85,000 new cases a day, which is about as high as it was uh, back in in January, and we have, um, it's less severe than in January, but we're seeing an increase now in hospitalizations of 20% a week, hospitals are filling up, and about a quarter of the cases are now people have been fully vaccinated. So it's obviously breaking through some of that, uh, and some of this is because some of the vaccines are wearing off. So it's, we're in a, a bit of a, a fix here compared to the rest of Europe, uh, because we're much worse off, although we're vaccinated early, we're not in a, in a great position. And uh, there's a lot of factors that are, that are causing that at the moment. All right. So when we talk about uh, those people who are, what, hospitalized with uh, full vaccination, or are they just uh, testing positive and are infected with minor cases? Well, the majority of people are minor cases, but that's still a, a big number, you know, 85,000 a day. That means uh, in the UK about, you know, uh, between half, been 800,000 people, nearly a million people with COVID at any one time. Um, but we are seeing about a thousand cases of people going to hospital every day. And uh, this is the UK. So, you know, slightly bigger than uh, Californian population. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's building up to be a bit of a perfect storm as we hit the, uh, winter season when flu is likely to come in and hospitals are all really pretty full. Uh, and so it's, it's not looking good. And, and, and the problem is uh, the UK, a bit like uh, the US, is, is pretty complacent about where we are, really relying totally on vaccinations and boosters with uh, zero restrictions uh, compared to the rest of Europe that has three times, four times lower levels. So I imagine people are, some at least, looking for more restrictions or maybe from the medical field asking the prime minister, well, what are you going to do about this? And his response is mainly in that boosterish approach, which is, hey, if, you, if you've had your two already, go and, go and get a third. Yeah, he, that's right. And most of the scientists, most of the, the, the medics are saying this is stupid to just wait. He said, when we hit the magic 100,000 cases a day, then maybe we'll go to plan B, which is to tell people to start wearing masks, social distancing, and uh, possibly vaccine passports like the rest of Europe have. But until then, we're just gonna hold fire because we've got these boosters in the bag. But the problem is the boosters, although they really work, uh, they're not being given fast enough the number of people that actually are uh, ready for them. And we're also not increasing our vaccination rate um, much at all. In, and so many parts of the, of, 
of the country, a bit like states in the US, have areas where only half the people, half the population have been vaccinated. So this is causing this problem of continuing infections, um, you know, with possibly new variants as well, because the numbers are so high. Is it too soon to know whether or not boosters uh, will keep people from getting major disease, from being hospitalized, from dying for any, uh, you know, meaningful period of time? Or is it a kind of short-lived thing? Well, obviously, no one knows because, I mean, the Israelis were the first to give boosters. And they've seen, certainly in the first few months, really effective, you know, 95% protection once you've had those three shots. Um, so I think that's that's the general rule. But even 95%, 95% still means that one in 20 people are going to still have problems. And that's what we're sort of seeing with this vaccination. They're just relying purely on vaccination. Unless you've got over 85% of the population covered, you're going to have problems. And I think this is where we're stuck by depending purely on technology and not trying to get the whole population vaccinated. You've got to look at the rest of Europe. There are countries like Portugal and uh, Denmark that have over 85% of every, every person, including kids, vaccinated. And they have like zero cases and they've managed to reduce their restrictions. And the worry is that you end up with this halfway house with you know 60% of the population vaccinated, no restrictions, lots of disease going around, and you never get rid of it. And I think this is this is the problem that um, the UK is facing, particularly when you've got a political situation where um, uh, our prime minister basically promised there will never be any restrictions again. We have Freedom Day where we, we can do what we want. And this is it's very hard then to claw back and say to people, hey, hang on, this is an airborne virus. You know, we've got flu as well. You need to wear masks. Dr. Tim Spector, genetic epidemiologist, King's College, London. Doctor, thanks. Truth in advertising matters. So when you bite into a warm strawberry Pop-Tart, do you expect mostly real strawberries? You know, it's a Pop-Tart, right? This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So, if you're eating a Pop-Tart for breakfast, maybe, I mean, let's be honest here, you're not super concerned about having a particularly nutritious or healthy meal to start the day. This is not a vendetta against Pop-Tarts. They're no. delicious. I used to eat them. But, you know, like I said yeah. earlier, it's not a smoothie. <laughs> so, um... There's a class action lawsuit, though, filed against Kellogg's, maker of Pop-Tarts, claiming that they have been lying to us when it comes to the breakfast treat. And specifically, it's the frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts, the lawsuit claims. There's a negligible, negligible amount of strawberries, not that many strawberries, used in the, in the Pop-Tarts, which amounts to false advertising. Spencer Sheehan is an attorney at Sheehan & Associates, and they are leading the class action lawsuit against Kellogg. Spencer, thanks for being with us. So I did, uh, sparing every expense, I went down across the street, and I did buy uh, a package of strawberry Pop-Tarts. 
and two. Some, you got me some. I got some. Yeah, I got some from nice. Mike. I said, thank you. Yeah, uh, and it says frosted strawberry, uh, and it shows a picture of what looks to be a strawberry filling. But when I do go to the ingredients on the back, after listing things like corn syrup and uh, dextrose and all the dextrose and all that other stuff, it does say it contains two percent or or less of wheat starch, salt, dried strawberries, dried pears dried apples, and then it goes on to list a whole bunch of other things. So there are, there are strawberries in it. So what's the, what's the beef with the strawberries? Thank you. Uh, well, the product that you bought uh, is one of the variations of the frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts. The case that I filed uh, recently was a different variation of the strawberry frosted Pop-Tarts, uh, which does contain strawberries, but it actually contains more pears and more apples than strawberries. You mean, the they, have, you, wait, you mean they have different different packaging, or do they make different versions of the actual strawberry they pop tart? They make different versions of the strawberry frosted pop tarts. Specifically, the case that uh, most likely caught your attention was a recent one I filed related to a whole grain pop tarts. So, while it may seem that pop tarts aren't uh, you know the best choice for breakfast, and I agree, they do sell a version of the whole grain strawberry Pop-Tarts, and those products, actually, I give them credit because they have a good amount of whole grain. That's that's completely true, but those strawberry Pop-Tarts, yes, they have strawberries, but they have more pears and more apples than strawberries, unlike the product that you're looking at, which does have strawberries, and it has pears and apples, too. Okay, so why is it not okay that they just call it strawberry? Because it's strawberry flavored. Who cares if it's got pears and apples and strawberries and mix and match the amounts? It's still red, and it kind of tastes like strawberries. Well, then they should probably call it pear uh, and apple Pop-Tarts, which are certainly uh, good fruits in themselves. And if you're going to call something strawberry, then it should have mostly strawberry. And if you're going to call it strawberry flavored, then... You know, the case says that the law actually requires that they say strawberry flavor, but they don't say that. So it's just a, a simple thing. They should either, you know, call them pear and apple Pop-Tarts or maybe strawberry flavored Pop-Tarts. Okay, so uh, is nutrition a, a factor in the lawsuit? I mean, is there an argument that uh, the person eating the strawberry Pop-Tart is not getting some kind of nutritional value that the they benefits would get of strawberries. from strawberries? Well, that is part of it because there has to be a reason why people like strawberries. Part of it is the strawberry taste. And part of it is, you know, the nutrition that strawberries provide. It may obviously seem a little bit far-fetched. Oh, you know, these are Pop-Tarts. Well, if that's the case, then why are they selling whole grain Pop-Tarts when, you know, these are, are, yes, still frosted Pop-Tarts. But if nutrition wasn't important, then there'd be no reason to to sell whole grain Pop-Tarts. And those are the reasons why people like strawberries. If we have to sort of think about it, we just, we normally don't think about why we like strawberries. Are we going to go after the blueberry and cherry Pop-Tarts as well? I hadn't planned on it because, well, one, you know, nobody told me that those labelings uh, for those products are inaccurate or deceptive. And I don't think they are, but I haven't looked. So uh, on the Pop-Tart versions uh, in your lawsuit where strawberries are allegedly not as sufficient as they ought to be. What would your suggestion to Kellogg be in terms of labeling? I would say uh, call them uh, pear pear Pop-Tarts or pear and apple Pop-Tarts or maybe 
you know, uh, strawberry flavored Pop-Tarts. Or but mi- don't just call them strawberry Pop-Tarts. W- mixed fruit, would that work? Mi- that would work, yeah. That would, that would work. I just solved the whole thing. I solved the whole thing. Spencer Sheehan, attorney at Sheehan and Associates, uh, leading this lawsuit against Kellogg's and the Pop-Tarts. I'd buy a mixed fruit Pop-Tart. Yeah. Wouldn't you? It's just called berry flavored. Berry or flavored. red, like Kool-Aid. What is it? It's red. Red. You know? Remember red that as a kid? Pop- yeah, red Pop-Tarts. Coming up. Police officers in this country, are they properly trained and equipped when it comes to dealing with young criminal suspects? This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The Associated Press launched an investigation into the policing of minors and the findings troubling. The types of force used to subdue children are almost identical to those used on adults. These often include takedowns, strikes and uh, muscling, but sometimes involve the use of tasers and police dogs. Very few police departments mention age as a limiting factor in the permissibility of force, and then uh, no policies outlining the proper procedure for managing a minor experiencing a mental health crisis were found. Nishan Neal is attorney at PLC Law Group, focus on civil rights litigation, specialty in police misconduct. Thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I guess there's nothing that prohibits force against uh, someone who's under 18, or even uh, some of these cases were pretty young, but we also can't find, to the setup here, a lot of actual concrete policies on what officers should do when they encounter someone who's who's you know young so thank you very much for inviting me and that's actually accurate so police departments have outlined what how they should interact with various uh, minors as it relates to interviewing but it, as it deals with the actual conduct of how you deal with it it's actually open there's no limits on what the officers should do other than what we would refer to as case law about how to deal with the totality of circumstances, how, whether weight, all those different weight, not age or whether the person may be armed or dangerous, all those same factors as an adult are to be taken and considered when dealing with the youth. And that's actually troubling. And that's one of the things that the AP, um, right build is that this is a problem that across the nation is that kids are subjected to police misconduct quite frequently, but there's not really any redress about how to do this to prevent it from happening. Well, I mean, for example, we we did reach out uh, to the LAPD because we wanted to find out just as an example uh, what procedures uh, and training it has for its officers when it comes to interacting with juveniles. Uh, and uh, I guess they sent us their uh, handcuff training manual and we took a look at it and there's little to no specific policies guiding officers and how to interact with young suspect and suspects and the manual pretty much leaves procedures on who to handcuff and how to handcuff largely to the discretion of the officers that i guess is is sort of the rule almost all around the country as opposed to an exception that is correct as as we litigate cases across uh southern california one thing that we've noticed is that there with the exception of interviewing when it comes down to what type of force should be used dealing with officers, it's definitely an up to the discretion of the officer. And that's often problematic because that's just too wide of a discretion. And if we have to wait for the courts to say this type of force is used towards children, that's actually 
going to take a very long time to actually have defined what type of conduct police officers should be allowed to use dealing with police. And that's including police at the schools, police at the on the streets as we deal with public transit. There's something else that's in here, too, and we'll just read the line out. Uh, Black children made up more than 50% of those in this AP look that were handled forcibly, though they're 15% of the U.S. child population. So 50 versus 15, that's a pretty huge discrepancy. It is a very huge discrepancy, and I think that's why locally in the context we've, over the last year when the Black uh, George Floyd protest started to percolate across the country in Los Angeles, we actually heard a lot of our community activists arguing, let's think about how to police differently in the school context. So I believe, I can't recall the organization, but some of the organizations were organizing with LAUSD to start having different types of people to ensure the safety of the students. So taking off the school officers and maybe having different treatment because of those stark differences about how black and brown children are being treated by officers in the school context. So it's very much a troubling fact. So what do you think it's going to take to change this? One of the things that we believe at at my law firm is that actually we have to continue litigating these cases that and we one thing about litigating the case is that um, it's our theory, just like the days of separate but equal with policing and Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP legal defense decided if this is the law separate but equal, the only way that we could actually have equality is to actually litigate that issue and all the way up to the court to make sure they're equal because they knew the end goal was not to have separate but equal things, but to say this conduct is untenable. And a part of our theory about police misconduct and encouraging citizens actually reporting incidents of police misconduct consistently throughout the place so we can have a documented track record. And for those that would like to pursue misconduct in the lawsuit, going forward and doing that. Because at one point in time, the police departments and the municipalities are gonna say, we're spending too much money on attorneys, jury verdicts and settlements for these cases. We need to improve policing. And that's our end goal with often dealing with these cases. And it's a hard, it's a hard task at this hand is because um, as the part of the conversation that we're dealing with in, in the federal government right now is the uh, George Floyd Policing Act. Currently that uh, proposal was passed in the House and one of the major concerns that were there is qualified immunity. And qualified immunity allows for um, the courts to uh, limit how liability for our elected officials, as well as our law enforcement officers. And that's a sticking point. And that is a troubling issue in that from us as civil rights advocates, as well as people against police misconduct, where we want to eliminate that uh, immunity defense, partly because case law should not define what type of rights. And uh, our rights is how we interact with the police department. And one of the troubling things is that they require us to actually deal with the court of appeal. And that's typically following a trial or a motion. And that's a long time. And if we think the percentage is only 97% of all the cases that are filed in 
federal court are settled. So there's actually no case law that comes out. Okay, we're so, going gonna to have, unfortunately, yeah. we're running out of time. So we are going to have to leave it there and maybe we'll have another discussion later on. That's Deshaun Neal, attorney at the PLC Law Group, focuses on civil rights litigation, specialty in police misconduct. Deshaun, thanks. More in-depth is on the way, another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. There are very few public officials who have a firsthand account of former President Donald Trump's presidential saga other than Congressman Adam Schiff. From the investigation into Russia's interference with the 2016 presidential election, the inside experience and the January 6th insurrection, Rep. Ship has seen it all and uh, has found himself right in the middle of it. He has a new book out covering Midnight in Washington, that's what it's called, how we almost lost our democracy and still could. Congressman, thanks for being back with us. So we'll get to plenty on the book, but let's uh, start with what happened yesterday, the vote from the full House to hold Steve Bannon in contempt because he didn't show up to the committee that you're on investigating the insurrection, a mostly party line vote, but she did get some Republicans, I think nine. So um, is that something? Is it surprising? Uh, actually, it was more than I was expecting. Uh, we certainly knew that we would have at least two Republicans, those that are on the select committee, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. But uh, how many others would be willing to confront uh, the president or one of his key supporters uh, and hold their feet to the fire, uh, insist on following the law uh, and complying with congressional subpoenas, uh, wasn't at all clear. So I was very pleased that we got as many as we did. What do you think the Department of Justice is going to do and what do you want them to do? I certainly hope and expect that they will present uh, this criminal contempt charge to the grand jury and prosecute him. Um, otherwise, some, you know, otherwise uh, we're not all equal under the law. People can simply thumb their nose at a subpoena, whether it's a court subpoena or a congressional subpoena, uh, as long as they're a friend of Donald Trump. And it simply cannot be that way. So we hope and expect that they will take it uh, quickly to the grand jury and that if Mr. Bannon uh, continues to refuse to comply, that he will be sentenced to jail for up to a year. How quickly is quickly? Because we know how legal things happen sometimes and people who don't want to go places just delay, delay, delay. Well, I think if the Justice Department quickly seeks an indictment or files a criminal complaint against him, um, then it will have an immediate impact, uh, if not on him, on everyone else who is debating right now whether to cooperate or try to obstruct the inquiry. Uh, there's nothing like the prospect of prosecution in jail to get people's attention. So it will already have an effect on others. Um, but I also uh, think that criminal litigation tends to move more quickly than civil litigation. Hopefully, this is the quickest path to securing people's cooperation. So here we have a situation in this country now where you've got most Republicans in Congress who are unwilling to buck the former president, uh, Donald Trump. You've got the former president uh, the other day saying that the real insurrection was on Election Day and the January 6th insurrection was just, in his view, the protest of uh, the uh, uh, insurrection, as he put it, on uh, the 3rd of November. Um, I guess my question to you is, are we going through now a kind of silent attempt of a coup? Well, you know, I think we, we are. I think that was the goal 
uh, in that assault on the Capitol. It wasn't so silent on January 6th. But the lesson uh, that Donald Trump has taken from this, and, and I write about it in the book, is that um, if he couldn't get Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, in Georgia to find 11,780 votes that don't exist, he seems to be determined to uh, find someone else who will in the next election. So they seem to be, by going around the country and stripping independent elections officials of their duties and the responsibilities and giving them over to partisans and partisan legislatures, they seem to be preparing the ground for uh, a success in overturning the ne next presidential election where they failed before. Um, and that to me is among the gravest dangers to our democracy. Yeah, and when we talk about where we are with this grand experiment we're doing, is it that it came down to just a couple of those people holding their ground, like the Raffelsburgers of the world? Because people argue, okay, the military is not going to go with something or the courts won't hold this uh, up. I mean, does it come down to just actually some state elections officials that, that did the right thing at the end of the day? It really does. Uh, we came very close, I think, to losing our democracy. Um, and we're not out of the woods. But it did come down to some local elections officials in places like Michigan and Arizona, some statewide elections officials in Georgia, uh, some state legislators, Republicans in places like Pennsylvania, that would not go along with this corrupt effort to overturn the election. Uh, it also relied on judges uh, to strike down these frivolous lawsuits. Uh, and we were extremely fortunate that the Republicans were not controlling the House of Representatives. Had Kevin McCarthy been speaker, uh, he would have decertified the election, and who knows what kind of a crisis we would be in right now. We're with Congressman Adam Schiff. His book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. More with him to come. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The way Burbank Congressman and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff describes it, the Republican Party has gone from a group intensely committed to big ideas and its philosophy of small government to a cult of personality. And you can probably guess who the cult revolves around. And Congressman Schiff, who is author of a new book, Midnight in Washington, remains with us on In-Depth. Congressman, uh, when it comes to voting rights, uh, as you know, Republicans in many states States now have systematically uh, passed legislation that curtails in many different ways voting rights. And it seems like the Democrats' only option would be uh, to get rid of uh, the uh, rules when it comes to filibusters in order to be able to ensure voting rights. But there seems to be uh, a great reluctance. Why? Well, there's no re reluctance among, I would say, 99% of the Democrats. Um, but there is reluctance, uh, you know, among one or two senators uh, who are Democrats uh, to doing so. But the overwhelming uh, consensus of Democrats is to do away with a filibuster altogether and uh, at a minimum to carve out voting rights from the operation of the filibuster. The filibuster cannot be used to protect another generation of Jim Crow laws, just as it has been used in the past. So there's a lot of uniformity, but it's not unanimity. And that's the problem when the Senate is divided 50-50. Uh, it underscores why uh, the, the president, I think personally, needs to be engaging constantly with Joe Manchin to try to find a path through. Uh, I think that is happening. And I'm hoping that the Senate votes uh, where the Republicans on block uh, 
moved to prevent uh, voting rights legislation from coming forward. I hope that's showing Joe Manchin uh, and Kirsten Sinema that uh, Republicans simply do not want to protect the right to vote. Indeed, their whole political business model is to disenfranchise people. And that, you know, trying to do it in a bipartisan way and failing, um, that it will impress upon uh, Joe Manchin and others the necessity of uh, doing at least a carve out of the filibuster so that this can get passed. Okay, but that's Joe Manchin. What about Joe Biden? Does he need to be doing more uh, in, in a more public way to push for this? Um, I think that uh, that everyone in the administration is going to need to do more, including the president, including the Congress, until we get this done. As far as I'm concerned, it's an existential threat to our democracy. No one is doing enough until it gets done. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not uh, privy to the meetings that the president is having with uh, Joe Manchin or others. Uh, I have talked with the president about uh, the whole democracy agenda and had a meeting with him in the Oval Office just a week or so ago and, and raised this issue. Uh, so uh, it's certainly front and center for me and I know for others as well. I guess from the outside looking in, though, and this shows up in some of the polling that goes back and forth, is it feels to a lot of people like there's not a lot getting done. And this administration has had some time now to get off the ground. Well, uh, you know, I guess I would take issue with part of that. Uh, we passed the American Rescue Plan which lifted half the kids who were in poverty uh, out of poverty and saved a lot of small businesses, accelerated the vaccines uh, into people's arms, helped renters stay in their homes, uh, helped people put food on the table. But there are two other really big bills that we need to get done. One is the infrastructure bill. The other is the Build Back Better bill that is essentially the human infrastructure bill that expands Medicare to cover vision and dental and hearing and paid family and medical leave, early childhood education, uh, higher education. Um, but I'm confident we're going to get that done. We'll probably get it done within the next two weeks. Um, and that will be a very powerful platform to run on and probably the biggest investment in the American people collectively since the New Deal. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned, for example, the expansion of Medicare to include dental and, and uh, vision. Uh, last night, uh, President Biden was on a town hall in CNN, and he was asked about that. And as I recall, his answer was along the lines of that that would be a stretch. So he didn't exactly give a full-throated uh, you know, endorsement that that was going to happen. Uh, you seem to be far more confident that it will. So whose vision on this is going to win out, yours or his? Well, it may be Joe Manchin's. Um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we can only get past uh, as much as, uh, you know, the members of our caucus in the Senate uh, want to do. And that, that comes down to, you know, any one or two members can, can hold out. Uh, I think the answer is uh, in the midterms, we need to expand our majority in the Senate. Uh, so that we can build upon whatever we get done uh, in the next two weeks. I'm, I'm curious, are, are you able to, at some level, uh, put yourself into the mindset of the people who are still uh, Trump supporters in this country, in the mindset of your fellow uh, congressmen and women who are still supporters of the president? Can you, at, at some level, uh, empathize, understand where they're coming from, or uh, is it just something you are totally bewildered about? Uh, well, no. I mean, I do understand where they're coming from, but frankly, where they're coming from is is a terrible place. And I and I don't put you know my colleagues 
necessarily in the same category with many of the president's supporters around the country. One of the things that was so apparent to me during that uh, uh, terrible insurrection, and I, I write about what it was like to be in that chamber when the insurrectionists were breaking the doors and breaking the windows and, and people were uh, worried for their lives. Uh, it, it was apparent to me that those people climbing, literally climbing up the outside of the building, they really believed the big lie about the election. But the people inside the chamber where I was working across the aisle, they knew it was a big lie. And they were content to keep pushing that big lie, even after uh, the insurrectionists had been cleared from the building. But while there was still blood on the ground, my Republican colleagues, most of them were back on the House floor, still trying to overturn the election, still clinging to the big lie to which they cling today. And, and to me, that's unforgivable. So those who founded this country founded it as an experiment, a grand experiment, but a, an experiment nonetheless. And by definition, experiments can either uh, succeed or fail. Uh, so as we sit here talking today, how close are we to failure? Well, I think we're perilously close. Um, if uh, we should uh, have an election in which by the use of these quasi-legal means, uh, they're able to overturn the election, uh, then we'll have lost our democracy. If people can't rely on elections to solve our differences and decide who should govern, uh, it paves the way for political violence, and that's exactly what happened on January 6th. So we're in, we're in a perilous state, um, but it's not, not uh, to be, you know, not a reason to despair. It's a reason to be engaged. Um, and the, the whole premise of, in fact, the, the reason I chose the title Midnight in Washington is Midnight might be the darkest hour of every day everywhere in the world, but it's also a time of hope because you know what follows is light. And I have every confidence we're going to get through this. But what we do right now uh, will determine how long it takes to get through it, how much damage we have to suffer in the meantime. Uh, and every one of us can play a role. Congressman, thanks so much. Thank you. Great to be with you. That's in depth for the week. We'll be back on Monday, 1 p.m.